Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. We're facing some serious political problems these days, but in his latest book, Adam Hochschild reminds us that at other times in our country's history, things may have been bad or even worse in some ways. What happened during the years 1917 to 1921, from the time America entered World War I through the period just after the war, may be largely forgotten now, but feels painfully relevant today. In America at Midnight, The Great War, A Violent Peace and Democracy Forgotten Crisis, Mr. Hochschild describes the rise of government surveillance, widespread censorship, and plans for the mass deportation of immigrants. And white nationalist groups were on the rise during those years, and so were anti-labor vigilante groups. It's published by Mariner Books and brings Adam Hochschild to our show now. Welcome. Thank you, Leonard. It's good to be with you. You refer to the period between 1917 and 1921 as the Trumpiest period in American history before Trump. But haven't things gotten even more troubling since Trump left office? Well, believe it or not, I actually think the period that I wrote about in American Midnight, 1917 to 21, uh, the United States came closer to the brink uh, Mm. of descending into some form of authoritarianism or fascism uh, than we did in the Trump years and even during the January 6th invasion of the Capitol. That time 100 years ago was really rough. We had uh, a thousand long-term political prisoners in this country, people who were sent to jail solely for what they wrote or said. Hmm. That's something Trump would have liked to do, but didn't do it. When American history is discussed, why is the 1917 to 1921 period often ignored or glossed over? Well, I think all countries like to sanitize their history. We talk about the parts that uh, can be made to feel glorious, the greatest generation that won World War II, the founding fathers who wrote the Constitution and all their wisdom and so forth. And we tend to skip over and suppress uh, the unsavory parts. And so when you look at the average American high school textbook, there is a chapter on the First World War and a picture of those doughboys in their forest ranger hats going off to Europe. They win the war. They come home. They're welcomed by ticker tape parades. And then you turn the page and the next chapter begins. And it's the Roaring Twenties, Prohibition, Mm -hmm. Speakeasies, Babe Ruth and more. They tend to skip this period in between. And that's what fascinates me and what I decided to focus this book on. I wonder whether 100 years from now, most Americans will have forgotten about or minimized the January 6th insurrection and the attempt to overthrow the 2020 election results. Or do you well, think things have changed? Yeah, given, given the tendencies that all countries have to sanitize their histories, I wouldn't be surprised if that happens mm. uh, when people are writing history textbooks uh, 100 years from now. So I think it's all the more important that we remember these times from the past, examine them carefully, see what we can learn from them. And that's what I was trying to do in this book. Woodrow Wilson has a very mixed legacy. Wasn't he in many ways a progressive leader? He created the Federal Reserve System, got women the vote, abolished child labor, fought for the League of Nations, and Wasn't he awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 1918? 
Uh, I don't think he was awarded the Nobel Prize, but he was certainly um, uh, progressive on all mm. those other issues. And you're right, he's a very paradoxical man. It's not possible to sort of unconditionally loathe him the way one can certain other presidents I could mention. Uh, but at the same time as he had this very idealistic side, and you can't deny that the uh, League of Nations idea, impractical as it may have been, was, you know, uh, something idealistic. It's far better for countries to settle their differences around a table than by going to war. But at the same time, he presided over the greatest assault on civil liberties in this country, really since the end of slavery. And he was unconcerned about it. He knew that there were those thousand long-term prisoners in American uh, prisons and jails. Uh, he knew that his Justice Department had chartered a nationwide vigilante group of 250,000 members who were arresting people by the tens of thousands and often roughing them up. Uh, he knew all this stuff was going on. He knew the country was beset by the worst racial violence in 50 years. And he Is that said, partly because of his own history as a white Southern segregationist? Yeah, After he, all, he screened Birth of a Nation in the White House, which did shock uh, he, many people at the time. He did. And his father was a chaplain for Confederate troops during the Civil War. And in the history books he wrote, and he published, you know, a dozen dozen books as a historian, he took a startlingly benign view of slavery. Uh, and I think he just wished the black people in this country would somehow go away, mm -hmm. or at least not be too conspicuous. So he did almost nothing in the way of speaking out when racial violence uh, swept over the country during this period. That was another characteristic of this period. Actually, I shouldn't say race riots, which is the way it's usually described in history books. These were really white riots, because mm -hmm. in almost all cases, and I'm thinking of the summer of 1919, when somewhere approaching a thousand black Americans were killed uh, violently, it was white crowds who didn't want them moving into northern cities in the Great Migration who started uh, this fighting. In, in uh, as an extension of Jim Crow. Yeah, well, I mean, what was happening in this period in terms of race relations was the great migration of black people out of the American South had started in earnest around 1910, where first by the hundreds of thousands and then by the millions, people were trying to get away from a region where there was often an average of one lynching a week. <laughs> they arrived in northern cities, and the people already there didn't want them there. They moved into a neighborhood, attended to lower property values. They were competing for jobs with white workers. And particularly in 1919, the most violent year, jobs were scarce because that year there were four million men demobilized from America's World War I army. But the factories that had been making tanks and guns and destroyers and artillery shells and so on had shut down. So there were black and white Americans uh, competing for jobs that weren't there. That was certainly one ingredient of the racial fighting that year. Now, did he win re-election in 1916 in large part because of the slogan, he kept us out of war? He did, did he know or suspect that we might eventually wind up entering the war? 
I think he did. Uh, Wilson was elected the first time, of course, in 1912. Then he was reelected in 1916, as you say, with campaign slogan, he kept us out of war. Wilson was smart enough not to utter those words himself, because I think he saw already by that point that the United States was going to be in this war. And by early 1917, he saw that the war was a stalemate and that unless the United States entered and sent its enormous armies to France, uh, Americans who'd bought British and French war bonds were never going to get paid back. Also, his ambassador in London had telegraphed Washington in March 1917, saying the British and French are running out of money, uh, with running out of gold, with which they had been buying an enormous quantity of military material in the United States, artillery shells, submarines, destroyers, uh, machine guns, and so forth. And unless the United States joined the Allies and was able to extend government-to-government credit, they'd not be continually able to buy this American war material. So I think that was an underlying reason why Wilson took the U.S. into the war. And I think he also felt we were the world's most powerful economy at that point. And unless we played a part in the war, we couldn't play a part in the peace that would reshape the world after the war was over. Well, how did a widespread propaganda movement try to change the minds of the many Americans who were opposed to the war? Well, that was another fascinating uh, facet of this period, which again tends to get left out of the standard textbooks. Uh, When the U.S. entered the war in April 1917, it was not united in that feeling. Uh, six members of the Senate and 50 members of the House of Representatives voted against the U.S. going to war. Uh, there was a lot of feeling on the left that, you know, the workers of the world should be fighting the capitalists and not each other. And there was a lot of feeling in various parts of the United States that this was a conflict and a really terrible conflict that was going on 3,000 miles away in Europe. And It wasn't our business. So there were many Americans who opposed the war and spoke out against it. This was deeply alarming to Wilson and the people around him. And it was for that reason that, first of all, they instituted the various forms of political repression, like sending people to jail for speaking out. They also started this massive government propaganda operation called the Committee on Public Information. Uh, whose most famous expression was something called the Four Minute Men. These were a trained corps of speakers, some 70,000 of them, and they were all men, who would appear for the four minutes in a movie house where in the days of silent films, it took four minutes for the projectionist to change the reel on a film. Normally, during that time, a movie house would show slides of advertisements for local businesses on the screen. But now suddenly a man would pop up and give a patriotic speech that lasted four minutes. So the Committee on Public Information, they did this. They they produced posters, postcards, pamphlets, uh, literature of all kinds. There was another corps of speakers uh, who gave longer talks. They were referred to as the four-hour men. So it was a massive government propaganda operation. 
My guest on today is Leonard Lopate at large here on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org is Adam Hochschild, whose latest book is America at Midnight, The Great War, A Violent Peace, and Democracy's Forgotten Crisis, published by Mariner Books. You open your book with a raid on the headquarters of the industrial workers of the world, the so-called Wobblies. Were they the most radical of the, of the labor groups at the time? Uh, the Wobblies, as they were universally known, nobody knows quite where the name came from, was uh, certainly the most radical labor union in the United States. Their numbers were never large, uh, never had more uh, than... Seen as an alternative to the American Federation of Labor? Very definitely. The American Federation of Labor was skilled workers. Uh, its, union, its member unions tended to keep blacks out. Uh, they wanted higher wages for skilled workers. But the Wobblies said everybody is welcome. Black, white, male, female, immigrant, native born. Uh, and they had the best music. They had the best posters. And so they had something of a following uh, e even among people who were not members of labor unions, not members of the working classes as well, because they caught the public imagination. And the scene with which I open the book takes place in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where the Wobblies had been uh, organizing oil field workers. And what happened once the U.S. entered the war, the labor strife that had been long simmering in this country accelerated because now employers who wanted to crush a union <clears throat> could accuse the workers of impeding the war effort if they went on strike. Uh, and so a, actually the Wobblies were not on strike, but nonetheless a uh, posse of uh, Tulsa police and detectives burst into their headquarters, uh, arrested 11 guys, sent them to jail, charged them with vagrancy, and they were convicted of vagrancy. And when the, the defendants protested, you know, say we were sitting in our office, we weren't uh, vagrant on the street. Uh, the judge, by way of explanation of finding them guilty, just said, these are no ordinary times. Uh, then these people who'd been arrested and some additional wobblies who'd been corralled in the courtroom and thrown in jail as well, were taken supposedly and packed into police cars supposedly to be transferred to another jail. But in fact, uh, these police cars, and it was all arranged beforehand, were surrounded by a band of vigilantes, men wearing black hoods and black masks. Uh, they were taken to a ravine outside of town. They were severely whipped and then tarred and feathered. And then uh, their, their shirts and shoes were removed, and they were told to flee for their lives uh, while shots were fired over their heads. So that's the scene with which I begin the book, to just show what the nature of the country was at that time. We were a very violent place. Did the fear of communism following the Russian Revolution provide an excuse for government repression? It sure did. Uh, the Russian Revolution, the second phase, when the Bolsheviks, the most radical faction, seized power in November 1917, followed, of course, about six months after the U.S. entered the First World War. And it terrified the American establishment because they were afraid that, you know, something like it might happen in the United States. 
I don't think that was a realistic fear. I don't think America has ever been on the, the verge of uh, a violent left-wing revolution. But that provided an additional excuse to go after radicals and above all, uh, members of the militant wing of the labor movement. Like Big what, Bill Haywood? Yeah, Big Bill what Haywood. What was he arrested for? <laughs> he was, in, in the fall of 1917, the government decided to crush the Wobblies. This was a fully legal organization. A labor union had the right to exist. They weren't violating any laws. Uh, but the government arrested several hundred wobbly leaders in raids all over the country, and they put them on trial in several big mass trials. The biggest was one in Chicago. started off with more than 100 defendants. It uh, was and still is the largest civilian criminal trial in American history. Big Bill Haywood was the Wobblies' most famous uh, leader. Uh, he and all of the people on trial uh, in Chicago were all found guilty on all counts, <coughs> sentenced to a cumulative total of 807 years of prison time. And Haywood had actually been a saloon card dealer in his youth. And he wrote to his friend, uh, uh, the journalist John Reed, uh, the other fellow won. He had cut, shuffle, and deal. He wound up in Russia, but that's a whole other story. Yeah. Um, what, yeah. what do you think exacerbated populist anger against immigrants? Well, you know, this country has always had a certain amount of tension between people whose ancestors got here a couple of generations ago hmm. and people who arrived more recently. And now, we're seeing that right now. Yeah, we see it right now, where there's a tremendous hostility in many parts of the country against immigrants and refugees trying to come over the southern border from Latin America. If you roll back the clock 100 years, there was no mass immigration from Latin America, but the mass immigration was coming from Eastern and Southern Europe. In other words, Italians, Poles, and Jews, for the most part. Mm. And they were met with increasing hostility by the Anglo-Saxons who tended to dominate uh, American politics in this era. Northern Europeans. Yes, people whose ancestors had come from the British Isles, from Germany, from the Netherlands, from places like that, and who'd come a couple of generations earlier. That's always been the American pattern, that those whose ancestors arrived a few generations earlier resent those who are coming uh, today. And so there was tremendous feeling against these uh, new immigrants who were, of course, seen as, you know, unwashed, debasing the cultural level of the country and so forth. Uh, and in the presidential elections of 1920, there were no less than four major candidates for the presidency in both parties campaigning on promises of mass deportation, you know, mm. which sounds very similar to what we've heard in the last couple of years. Now, you said that Germans were among the accepted group, but then after the war began, didn't that change? Uh, weren't it, people banned from speaking German in public at that time, even on the phone? Uh, how did true. that affect your own family, where, where um, uh, I guess, you know, there were German speakers? 
Yeah. Yeah, this was something I heard about from my parents as I grew up. Paradoxically, my mother's family, they were WASP, Anglo. Uh, they actually knew Woodrow Wilson because my mother's <laughs> father, my maternal grandfather, was a professor at Princeton University where Wilson had been president. Uh, so he was a very familiar figure to them. Uh, but my father's family was Jewish. His father was an immigrant from Germany. They spoke German around the dining table at home, but they were terrified of doing so on the street because you could get beaten up for it. The moment the U.S. entered the war, you know, entering any war does something crazy to a country. Suddenly there was this hysteria against all things German. Several states passed laws against speaking German in public or on the telephone. There were or teaching German in the schools, although yeah, Iowa and Nebraska went further and banned speaking all foreign lang languages in public. That's right. And you can actually find all over the country there were bonfires of German language books that had been taken out of school and college libraries. The country really went berserk. Uh, once the war was over, this very quickly evaporated because now the target of, uh, you know, scorn and, and, you know, being pointed to as a danger and so on was anybody who could be linked to Russia. Mm. And so that person speaking an incomprehensible language on the street corner might be a Russian spy. But there's, there's always been this kind of strain of paranoia in American life that has found different targets at different times. Did the Metropolitan Opera stop performing works in German for a time? And is it's, that when we started calling Frankfurters hot dogs? That's certainly true. Uh, and, uh, you know, they changed the name. German Shepherd became Alsatian Shepherd and so forth. <laughs> uh, and even, you know, I grew up in New York City and was quite familiar with the Lenox Hill Hospital, uh, you know, in, on the Upper East Side. My pediatrician's office was across the street. Uh, and only when I was researching this book did I learn that it had previously been the German hospital and dispensary with a Kaiser Wilhelm pavilion. And those names were all changed after the U.S. entered the First World War and never changed back. During the Great Migration, weren't many black people leaving the South and moving to parts of the country that offered more financial opportunity? Uh, was that a big issue at the time? It certainly was. It was something that exacerbated all of these tensions that we've been talking about. Um, and as I said, black people were leaving the South. Uh, they were terrified of lynching. They were also understandably wanting to flee an area where most of them were working in miserable, low-paid jobs, you know, picking cotton as sharecroppers or doing stuff like that. And there was opportunity in the North because that's where industry was growing. And especially during the war years, there were factories looking for workers. Uh, but they were did not find a warm welcome in northern cities. People didn't want them there. Uh, they tended to lower wages because they were willing to work for less wages. Also, industry for years had played off of these racial tensions by using black workers as strike breakers. Hmm. Many labor unions wouldn't admit black members. Uh, and when you know, black Americans arrived from the south in a, in a northern city, 
you know, couldn't get into a local labor union or get a job, but an employer came along and said, we'll hire you as a strike breaker, they often said yes. And of course, that exacerbated tensions still further. Well, uh, before Wilson, wasn't the federal bureaucracy integrated uh, and then he resegregated much of the federal workforce, Washington, D.C.? That's true. At the end of Wilson's two terms, there was a smaller percentage of black people working for the federal government as there had been when he started. The federal workforce was not really integrated because, of course, the, the black folks in it tended to be in the lower level jobs. But Wilson was a strong uh, segregationist. Uh, half of his initial cabinet were other white Southerners who had the same views he did on race. And they really did set about segregating the federal bureaucracy. Uh, you know, his a particularly egregious example of this was Wilson's postmaster general, Albert Burleson, who was a former co uh, congressman from Texas, arch segregationist. His family had actually owned 20 slaves at the time that he was born. And he was outraged that in post offices and, and postal mail sorting facilities around the country, blacks and whites were using the same restrooms, working in the same work workspace. He set up screens so that black mm. workers wouldn't have to look at white workers. He segregated post office windows, you know, the windows you went to to get stamps and so on. Uh, he segregated all kinds of things, rest areas and so forth, inside post offices. And Burleson also happened to be the administration's chief censor. We should talk about that because censorship was a huge part of this period as well. Uh, did many black people enlist to fight in the war, although the armed forces were segregated? Uh, did that help them gain respect, or did that lead to fear by whites that blacks had had military training? Uh, it, it did indeed do the, the last thing. Uh, many black people enlisted in the Army. The, the four million man army that the U.S. Uh, fielded at this point in the war was almost 10 percent black. Even the most militant of black leaders, W.E.B. Du Bois, uh, had urged black men to enlist, saying, this will put us in a better position to demand our rights when you come home from the war. Uh, I think he later regretted his decision because what happened was when uh, black troops came home from the war, especially if they went to the South, people were, white people were terrified that here were blacks who had been armed, who knew how to fight, and who had ideas and aspirations. Uh, there were which, some, which led to the resurgence of the KKK? Uh, the resurgence of the KKK was already going on during this period, but it certainly led to an increase in lynchings. There were more than 70 black people lynched in the summer of 1919, the first year after the war ended. Uh, some 11 of them were war veterans, and three of them were actually lynched in uniform. Oh. Now, what about the anti-war protesters? Wasn't the 1915 song, I Didn't Raise My Boy to Be a Soldier, a big hit before we entered the war? It certainly was. And there was certainly a lot of strong feeling in the United States that 
you know, this war was a terrible thing, but it wasn't our business. It was a divided feeling because there were many parts of the country, especially in the Northeast, especially among people who had ties to England and France. I think especially in the upper classes, there was very strong Anglophile feelings. And there were Americans who actually did, before the U.S. entered the war, volunteer uh, often as ambulance drivers and that sort of thing uh, to help the Allied war effort. But, but at the same time, wasn't labor organizer Emma Goldman sent to prison for her anti-war activities? And although she'd lived most of her life in the United States, was married to an American citizen, the government deported her. That's right. She was very outspoken. Uh, she, like many people on the left, uh, felt, you know, we had no role to play in this war at, at all. It was a war between rival capitalist powers. Uh, workers should be fighting them and not be fighting each other on the battlefield. So the moment the war started, Emma Goldman started uh, organizing against the draft. Uh, but this got her immediately sentenced to prison for a two-year term. She gave a very eloquent speech in her defense when she was put on trial, uh, asked the jury, uh, you know, can there not be several kinds of patriotism? Our kind of patriotism, meaning her and her co-defendant, is that of a man who loves a woman with open eyes. He's enchanted by her beauty, yet he is not blind to her faults. Uh, and I think that's a wonderful definition of, of patriotism. So she served her two years in prison and then was fairly swiftly deported uh, after that, along with nearly 250 other radicals. They were put on a ship and expelled from the country. And the person who stage managed all of that was a 24-year-old J. Edgar Hoover, who was just getting his start in the government at that time. And we'll talk more about him in a few minutes. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. million soldiers to the war have gone Who may never return again Ten million mothers' hearts must break For the world who died in Heads bowed down in sorrow in her lonely years. I heard a mother murmur through her tears. I didn't raise my boy to be a soldier. I brought him up to be my pride and joy. I hope you're enjoying this conversation with Adam Hawkschild. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of his book, American Midnight, The Great War of Violent Peace and Democracy's Forgotten Crisis. Just go online to give to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950 during today's show, and we'll be happy to send you a copy. That's Give and the number 2, WBAI.org, or 212-209-2950. But don't forget to make that $50 donation in the name of Leonard Lopate at large, and we thank you very much. And return to Adam Hochschild. Uh, the book again, American Midnight, The Great War, A Violent Peace and Democracy's Forgotten Crisis from Mariner Books. Um, 
Mr. Hochschild has written a number of books, including King Leopold's Ghost, about Belgian plundering of the Congo, Spain in Our Hearts, about Americans who fought in the Spanish Civil War, and to end all wars about the British experience in World War I. Uh, <laughs> and we're talking about the uh, conflicted experiences uh, in this country. Uh, we tend to think of uh, people rallying around the flag uh, in times of crisis, but obviously there are always uh, people who object. Uh, were conscientious objectors recognized under the law at the time? Not really. They were drafted into the army and treated as soldiers who had refused to obey orders. And they were treated very harshly. Even if uh, they had religious objections? Even if they had religious objections. Uh, that whole system of formalizing a status of conscientious objector and so on uh, was not developed at that time. Uh, they were, most of them were eventually persuaded to do non-combatant work in the army, you know, driving ambulances and caring for the sick and so forth. But there were uh, several hundred, uh, at least 400, nobody's sure of the exact number, who were, were, were what were known as absolutists, who would not do any kind of labor. They were treated very harshly in military prisons, often put on bread and water diets, uh, in some prisons, uh, when they refused to do the manual labor that was required of all prisoners, they were shackled standing to their cell bars for the eight hours a day that they were expected to be uh, working. And uh, many of them died in prison, in part because uh, they were there at the time of the influenza epidemic of 1918-1919, which took a terrible toll when you had young people packed together in confined spaces like prisons, barracks, and so on. Did the U.S. Department of Justice sponsor and fund the American Protective League? Yeah, this was a group of vigilantes, actually not funded by the Justice Department, but sponsored by it. They had their own funding. A lot of it came from, from big businessmen. This was an organization started by a Chicago advertising man, uh, Albert Briggs, and it consisted mostly of middle-aged men who were too old to fight, but who wanted to feel they were doing something patriotic for their country in this time of danger. And if you joined the American Protective League, you got to wear a silver badge like that sort of size and shape of a shield that a police officer or firefighter wears. And it said, you know, the American Protective League, your rank you know, operative, chief, lieutenant, captain, so forth. And then in the middle of the badge, it said, Auxiliary of the U.S. Department of Justice. And these folks went around uh, performing citizens' arrests in large numbers on young men who couldn't produce a draft card. These guys would often be roughed up and then held in a police station or a warehouse or army barracks or something, sometimes for a couple of days until their families could be contacted and you know get the draft card they left at home or whatever. A tiny percentage of them, uh, not more than one or two percent, actually were trying to evade the draft and were shipped off to the army. 
but most of them just didn't happen to have their draft card with them or were old enough so that they hadn't had to register in the first place. So this was a way, joining the American Protective League was a way in which, as I say, these somewhat older men could feel that they were fighting the war and being uh, patriotic, but it struck terror into many American cities where they operated. And gave us a phrase like slacker raids. Yeah, that's what they were, these were called. The, the largest slacker raid took place in New York City in uh, uh, the fall of 1918. And the estimates are that uh, as many as 50,000 young men were held, in some cases for several days. That, that raid actually got some pushback, where actually uh, women from their families uh, tried to break into a couple of police stations where the men were being held. Members of Congress protested, but the organization was allowed to continue. And the FBI actually had undercover agents like Leo Wendell uh, in, infiltrate the Wobblies? Yeah, he's actually sort of the, my favorite character in, in, in the book. One of the characteristics of this period was that government began to infiltrate left-wing organizations on a huge scale. Both military intelligence, which employed a thousand people spying on other Americans by the uh, end of the war, and civilian intelligence, which meant the Bureau of Investigation, predecessor of the FBI, the Bureau just added federal to its name some years later. Uh, Leo Wendell was a former private detective who was sent by the Bureau to infiltrate the Wobblies, the most militant labor union, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, a big industrial center where, of course, they didn't want trouble. Uh, he was so good at this that he got elected secretary of the local Wobbly branch and found himself giving speeches, leading demonstrations, uh, taking part in political meetings and so forth. In order to maintain his credibility, the government several times arrested him very conspicuously. Hmm. Uh, and he would be hauled away protesting in front of a crowd of people. Some, For some reason, his comrades never seemed suspicious that he always managed to get out of jail hmm. a couple of days later and be back at work. So all this time that he was an active wobbly, he was sending three or four reports a week to the Justice Department. And today, thanks to the National Archives, you can read them all. Our guest on today's show is Adam Hochschild. His latest book, American Midnight, The Great War of Violent Peace and Democracy's Forgotten Crisis from Mariner Books. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. I want to talk about Attorney General A. Mitchell Palmer. Didn't he start his career as an anti-war Quaker? What led to his becoming intent on ridding the, uh, the country of what he considered to be dangerous troublemakers? Ambition. Uh, Palmer was indeed a Quaker. He even sometimes used the old Quaker ways of speech, you know, where you say thee and thou instead of you. Mm -hmm. uh, he became Wilson's attorney general in uh, uh, <clears throat> early uh, 1919, and he was very ambitious. He had his eye on the Democratic nomination for president in 1920, and he very quickly figured out that his best path to that was to be the champion of law and order. 
there was some disorder in the United States. There were anarchists who carried out a wave of bombings, uh, and Palmer's own house was damaged severely in one of these bombings. Uh, but they actually never caught the bombers because it was a very tiny group of anarchists uh, who were extremely skillful. Uh, people today were pretty sure who they were, but they were never successfully prosecuted. However, it struck fear into the country. It came during this Red Scare atmosphere that was, where there was already tremendous hysteria about Bolshevism. And Palmer decided he wanted to ride this wave of hysteria to the presidency. So he staged what became known as the Palmer Raids, which were a massive roundup of probably about 10,000 people altogether, late 1919, early 1920. And, and, some of the, and one of the people who engaged in those raids was a young and ambitious J. Edgar Hoover, who uh, invited newspaper reporters to accompany him on the raids. That's right. Hoover always had a very shrewd eye for publicity, and he really organized these raids. They should be called the Hoover Raids, but uh, Palmer wanted the credit because he saw this as a pathway to his gaining the presidency. Palmer went too far, though, because he made the mistake, which many demagogues do, of believing their own propaganda. And in uh, early 1920, he began predicting repeatedly and loudly that on May 1st, 1920, May Day, the International Workers' Holiday, uh, the United States would be hit by a nationwide communist uprising. People took him seriously. Cities canceled leave for their police forces. New York City, for instance, called out all three shifts of the police force. One was on the streets. The other two were waiting in station houses. J.P. Morgan hired extra guards. They posted security people at bus terminals and railway stations and so forth. Uh, the day dawned and nothing happened. And that sort of began to take the wind out of Palmer's presidential campaign uh, and out of the Red Scare generally. Well, uh, the Red Scare uh, played a part in politics of the time. Eugene V. Debs ran against uh, Wilson in 1912 as the Socialist Party candidate, won only 6% of the vote, uh, but he was prosecuted under the Espionage Act, which had been passed in 1917, and sentenced to 10 years in prison. He was indeed, and he was still in prison in 1920 when he received nearly 900,000 votes for president on the socialist ticket. I mean, that's why I say this was such a repressive era. You know, during Trump's first campaign, his followers chanted, lock her up, lock her up about Hillary Clinton. But in this case, Wilson actually did lock up one of his campaign mm -hmm. opponents with a 10-year sentence. Is the Espionage Act still in effect? It is. It has been much amended, but ironically, it is one provision of the act that may get uh, Donald Trump in considerable legal jeopardy over those classified documents at Mar-a-Lago. Uh, but the act happily no longer allows the government to uh, send somebody to jail for speaking out against a war. You describe numerous threats to American democracy from 1917 through 1921. What brought the period to an end? 
Well, I think it was partly this thing that I just mentioned that, that Palmer predicted this nationwide military, the nationwide communist uprising, and it never happened. Uh, and then came the fall uh, 1920 presidential campaign where the victor by an overwhelming margin was Warren Harding, uh, not a terribly distinguished president. No, he's, he's not very well regarded. But no. does he deserve credit for ending the violent repression of socialists I, I, and other activists? To some extent he does, because he sensed the national mood and his campaign slogan was return to normalcy. And when he became president, uh, he immediately stopped the censorship. Uh, he'd been a newspaper publisher before the war. He didn't, before he went into politics, he didn't like the idea of the government censoring the press. So he immediately shut down Wilson's censorship operation, which had shut down some 75 newspapers and magazines uh, during the war and afterwards. And Harding began letting the political prisoners out of jail. Not all Including of them. Eugene V. Debs. He invited him to the White House after he commuted his sentence. That's right. He commuted Debs's sentence, Christmas uh, 1921, invited Debs to come see him in Washington on the way home. They talked for half an hour, and then Debs came out and met the press and said, I've run for the White House five times, but this is the first time I've ever gotten here. <laughs> now, uh, you also write about things like the literary magazine uh, Masses, uh, would you consider it to be a precursor of any uh, contemporary magazines? Yeah, I think it's very much a precursor of The New Yorker. It's mixture of reportage, uh, fiction, poetry, <clears throat> interesting works of art. They pioneered the style of cartoon that The New Yorker became famous for later, where you have uh, one line of dialogue as a caption. Uh, and this was really the country's finest magazine. It but it was, was, it was uh, the editors were put on trial and the publication was closed down. That's right. The editors were put on trial. Uh, the jury, jury divided, so they were not convicted. There were two trials. But what happened to was, freedom of speech? Yeah, no, no freedom of speech there. Uh, Postmaster General Burleson, who had the capacity as Postmaster General to declare a publication unmailable, which of course meant that monthlies and weeklies you know, had no way to reach their subscribers, declared the masses unmailable. He was offended by a number of things in one issue, one of which was a cartoon of the Liberty Bell crumbling. We have to leave it there, unfortunately. There's a lot more to talk about. It's a fascinating book, and my great thanks to you for being on our show. I've been speaking with Adam Hochschild about his latest book, American Midnight, The Great War, A Violent Peace and Democracy's Forgotten Crisis, published by Mariner Books. Thank you so much for being on our show. Okay, thank you, Leonard. It was a pleasure. Take care. And that brings us to the end of our show. Our great thanks to Deborah Freeman, who prepared today's segment. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our over 700 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed one million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. 
And if you would like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. That's give and the number 2WBAI.org or 212-209-2950 because we need your help to keep bringing you this unique in-depth content, information you don't usually get anywhere else. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopez at large right now can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, American Midnight, The Great War, A Violent Peace and Democracy's Forgotten Crisis by Adam Hochschild. So why not make that call right now at 212-209-2950 or go online to give to WBAI.org. And you might also consider becoming a sustaining member of the station, what we call a BAI buddy for 10, 15, 20, 25 dollars, however many dollars you're comfortable with uh, into the future until you decide to stop it. And it allows us to plan for the future. Uh, But either way, I hope you'll call right now because BAI relies 100% on listener donations. We don't take any ads or foundation grants, which allows us to be completely free speech radio. So if you tune in regularly to this show, let us know you appreciate what we do by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 to play a part in keeping this historic station the only one on the New York radio dial that's 100% listener-sponsored, alive and thriving with your tax-deductible support. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you on our next show.